Hello, folks, and welcome to the Antifada. We have a Sean and Andy episode this week. We have a very, very exciting guest with a very, very exciting new book out now from Zero Books. That is, of course, the lead Grossmanite, the world's number one Grossmanite, Ted Reese from the UK. What's up, Ted? Hi, thanks very much for having me on. I'll just say that I'll just... Uh... Thanks for the the big up there, but um, I have to give that honour to Rick Coon, who's written, <laughs> written extensively on Grossman. I've fo- followed his lead somewhat. Okay, but, so um, can you give us his email and we'll try to get him on the line? Because <laughs> I, I thought we were talking to the number one Grossmanite. <laughs> Sorry to disappoint straight off the bat like that. Well, listen, uh, we had a little bit of time confusion on recording this thing. Let's just add to the time confusion and try to get an Australian in here, too. (laughs) Yeah, it might be waiting a bit longer. (laughs) Uh, Ted, you are the author of uh, the book The End of Capitalism, The Thought of Henrik Grossman. We, I think, uh, Andy and I, over the last few years, have probably pumped and primed our listeners uh, to be ready for this book. Uh, We've mentioned uh, Grossman several times in passing, but we've never, up until this point, done an episode on his thought. We've obviously talked a lot on this show about political economy. We've talked about crisis in general. But now you are here to bring this all home. As as we all know, the uh, global economy is in quite a state right now. So let's get right into it. Let's get gross. Let's get gross, man. Oh, my God. There's going to be so many corny, gross puns in this. But, uh, last one. Last one. I, I like to call him the big man. The big man, huh? Tag team? Grossman is, uh, I'm assuming that means big man in... Uh... Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, he's... And he, and he was about five foot six, I think, so... That was huge back then. Yeah, yeah I was going to say, yeah, that was very big for back then. <laughs> he was, uh, uh, Grossman uh, was more than simply a theorist, although um, for a certain time he was one of the, the foremost uh, Marxist theorists, pr- uh, critics of political economy in the 1920s and 30s. He also comes from a revolutionary background as well, right? He was active in uh, Galicia and, um, and yeah. what's now Poland and Germany in the struggle. So tell us a little bit about Grossman's life uh, and how you got interested in Grossman's work. Okay, so br- briefly in terms of his life, he became a Marxist very young um, when he was a student uh, around um, the age of 15. He was opposed to, um, you know, the, the partition of Poland and the occupation. And so he started going to socialist meetings um or left-wing meetings um of in the held by the polish social democratic party and um he claims he later claims in talks to um with a a comrade actually an australian comrade that he um became acquainted with in australia in in the in the u.s sorry later on that he he said that he mastered uh, the marxist literature very quickly and um a bit like marx himself he was very you know self-assured in his ability to to um you know master the theory um so he ends up splitting with the social democratic party because he doesn't think that it takes the needs of jewish people and Jewish workers in particular very seriously they have a kind of assimilationist like a wholly assimilationist uh, position on on the question whereby you know um, you know all race and nationality will wither away with socialism and so that's the solution to the oppression of Jewish people whereas he thinks you've also got to take into account the day-to-day oppression that they're experiencing in the here and now but he does he tries to do it in a very non-sectarian way he tries to stay supported supportive of the polish and austrian parties but when he when he eventually starts the new party he um is met with sectarianism from from those parties so this is the kind of activity he was involved in later later on he um joined uh the communist party 
um, that was more that basically split from the Social Democratic Party. His position on the the Jewish question changed a bit. It became less federalist. Um, sorry, on the Polish question, came it became less federalist and more like Lenin's position. Um, but he was then um, imprisoned several times for his activity um, as one of the leaders of the Communist Party, and he was later exiled to Germany, um, where he stayed on the condition that he didn't join the German any of the German parties. And he became a member of the Frankfurt School instead, um, which was mainly mainly um, dominated by the sort of cultural and philosophical thinkers who were quite very sympathetic to Marxism, um, but but liked to look at it from that direction. Um, his book came out as one of as one of the texts um, produced. Um, published by the Frankfurt School and it was actually the most read uh, or most um, uh, sought after book that the Frankfurt School published at the time in 1929 that book was The Law of Accumulation and the Breakdown of the Capitalist System and he claims um, that it was the first um, reconstruction of capital since Marx and that it was the first book to accurately describe and explain what Marx was actually trying to do in Capital, um, and we'll get into that. But but my my interest in Grossman uh, uh, has been going on for about eight years now. I started writing theory based on um, so, sort of looking into the technological revolutions that are going on, especially with automation, and just thinking about how um, that's going to produce deeper and deeper crises because of you know the labor theory of value and and all that um if you know if, if the exploitation of labor and labor time is the source of profit then the automation of of production is going to cause some pretty big problems for the capitalist economy so i started writing about that and i start you know i was talking to comrades in the organization i was in at the time about you know are we approaching a final crisis of capitalism and they, one of them recommended Grossman's book, the abridged version, which only came out in 1992, uh, the English abridged version. And he was like, you, you ought to try and apply some of this to your essay that you're writing on, on automation. So that's where it started. So I first encountered uh, the thought of Henrik Grossman, not by reading him, but because um, 10, 11, 12 years ago, I became acquainted with a great older comrade who had um, John Garvey is his name and I hope to get him on the podcast actually at some point uh, he was organizing taxi drivers in New York City in the 1970s and he described himself as a Grossmanite and he explained to me the idea of breakdown theory and the final crisis and so there are militants um, who have been you know trying to apply or interested in Grossman's thought for a while but he these, these days he comes off as a bit of a fringe figure uh, within uh, Marxism. At the time, though, as you describe it, him being part of the Frankfurt School, being, I think, along with Friedrich Pollock, uh, one of the two people uh, interested in political economy and not uh, what we think of with the, the Frankfurt School, which, of course, is cultural critique and critical theory and all that. Um, talk a little bit about the reception of Grossman's ideas and why he comes off as a marginal figure, because, as I understand it, when he releases the law of accumulation, it's three months before uh, in 1929, uh, this, the, the the Wall Street crash happens, and we enter what is probably up until this moment the deepest capitalist crisis, um, you know, to date. Yeah, I mean, it's it's fascinating that he managed to get it out just in time for that, um, because the book um, uh, anticipates a he calls it a mass. He, he doesn't call it like we're coming into a great depression but he anticipates a massive crisis um just by looking at what's going on the st on the stock market because it's going crazy and he's saying look the, all, all of the investments being chucked into the stock market because there's no profitable opportunities in production and in the book he mentions that uh Kautsky in 1927 had said basically the opposite that capitalism is doing better than ever um but 
but but despite being proven right almost immediately um after it was published it it um the reception was very hostile from almost all quarters um obviously it took aim the book took aim at um revision like reform the reformist wing of the socialist movement especially and and they obviously didn't like that and then he did also take aim at the likes of Varga who was the chief economist um in the so or the chief economic advisor in um in the Soviet Union to Stalin and Varga gave a quite a, a terse response and just sort of dismissed it and you know it, it didn't make a lot of impact at all with the leadership of uh, the Communist International, although it did make a fair bit of impact in pockets um, in the Soviet Union from, um, you know, uh, a, a diverse range of thinkers situated there. But yeah, it was um, it it wasn't met too kindly within any part of the the socialist movement really and he ends up falling out with the frankfurt school as well <laughs> the um there's something about the implications then so we can see from when it from when his work was done previous to the great depression and then his book coming out that um whatever he did there was a certain amount of predictive capacity uh within his reworking of marxist theory but obviously, there's something about the idea of a breakdown theory of a final crisis that didn't fit politically. It seems like uh, with the common turn in the in the 19, late 1920s and, and 1930s, uh, and also I think since then has been accused of being uh, far too mechanistic, far too economistic, uh, leaving far uh, uh, not enough agency for the working class and class struggle. Uh, in the construction of what's beyond capitalism. So does that account for a lot of the uh, the, the, um, the inability of uh, Grossman's work to, to really uh, pick up in the in the West? I mean, that was the accusation straight away um, that he had been too dismissive of the importance of class struggle. But that's if you actually read it, that's not the case. Um, he's trying to he, he does bend the stick as he as he says a bit like lenin does in terms of he sees a situation where the, the writing the the literature at the time had focused too much on the political revolution and not on the economic question so he's trying to get the like rebalance that sort of thing um so he says from the start like i am not denying that other things have an impact on politics it's not just economics um, but still, this underlying tendency is the most impactful aspect um, of the crisis of capitalism, whether that's a so the social crisis or the political crisis. Um, so he sets out from that, and then what he re-establishes, and what he's trying to demonstrate that Marx is demonstrating, is that the class struggle is instigated or intensified by the tendency to breakdown that is inherent in capitalist production and accumulation. So he, essentially he shows that the the system um, produces more capital than can be reinvested profitably, which means it's pointless to reinvest that capital, and that alongside that arises surplus labor that can't be employed by this capital that is also effectively unemployable and so the system breaks down into a crisis and that um, compels the capitalists to attack the working class firstly through producing this unemployment and also attacking wages and anything else that you know can go into the wage like taxes or whatever um so that's what he's saying and um he's he's basically giving a material basis for why the class struggle even exists he's not so he's he's doing you know i think he's um 
moving away from a determinism that was too focused on class struggle and too focused on politics that didn't um, take the economic question into account enough. And, and he does all sorts of things that all of the other Marxists after Marx just hadn't done. And we can go a bit more into that if you, if you want to. Uh, there's a lot of uh, comparisons that one can make between Grossman doing this work in the 1920s, trying to revitalize uh, Marx's mature critique of political economy, which, as we all know, was unfinished. Uh, and also, mm. and I've argued very recently on this show uh, um, about uh, a similar bent towards the opposite of economism, uh, which would be, I guess, politicism or something like that. Um, mm. People who are trying to analyze capital purely uh, from a political or a geopolitical standpoint, uh, leaving, I, I think, uh, the core of, of Marx's work, um, which is that critique of political economy, unexamined, uh, and which is really the environment in which all struggle happens. This is the, the air in which we breathe. And right now, uh, again, just like the 1920s, it feels like a, a similar moment. And maybe uh, your book it might be one of the more timely interventions, hopefully, that we have right now. Maybe today some of people are more ready to to hear out Grossman because the the idea law of the rate of profit to fall is it seems to be much more popular. Even the gospel to the point that some of our friends have to like fight back against it. Um, but uh, it's I mean it's pretty clearly stated in volume three that this happens and will continue to happen. Right? What, were people just not reading volume three, or did they they take issue with that section? Um. I mean, it's hard to say exactly, but they, because there was a delay in the publication of Volume 3, um, so that must have played some sort of role, but Grossman's writing in 1929, so Volume 3's been out for over 30 years by this point. Um, essentially, what the biggest problem was, um, and he based, I think he pretty much accuses them all of doing this, whether it was Rosa Luxemburg or Otto Bauer or Bernstein and, and so on. Um, they treated volume two as if it wasn't based on abstraction, as if the, as if the pure sort of construction that Marx uses to analyze capitalism in its purest form um was actually his interpretation of of um the, a concrete form of capitalism so what he's doing in volume 2 is this simplified version where he focuses on the um he isolates the the capital relation so for example he starts out with the capitalist class and the productive commodity producing working class and all other classes are discarded. So it's a, it's a provisional um, construction. He, he um, analyzes how the accumulation of, of um, capital and profit develops under that isolated, pure system. Um, but they've interpreted it as the concrete version, which is what he does in volume three, where he starts reintroducing the 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 classes that were initially discarded, he starts changing the rate of surplus value uh, and uh, the rate of variable capital and that sort of thing. So I don't know exactly why they did that. Whether it was just um, a misinterpretation or if it was willful or what I don't really know they all sort of came to dips different they all did this was all they all made the same mistake and they all managed to come to dip slightly different conclusions so because because uh, um, Bauer right Otto Bauer the Austrian uh, social democrat takes uh, volume two um, at face value, sees it as concrete. And so therefore, yeah. when he's trying to pull together a theory of crisis, it becomes one of disproportionality between departments one and two means of production and, and commodities. And then Rosa Luxemburg, 
uh, tries to get out of a similar mess by positing that the only way that profits uh, can, uh, uh, the rate of profit can increase or expand is by uh, what is external to capitalism. So basically dumping commodities, dumping surplus capital uh, into the, the colonized world or the developing world is the way that capital comes into and out of crises. Uh, and so Grossman has to go back and I think that's a it's a very it, it's it's a very like scientific and astute way that he comes in and he points back to uh, what Marx says over and over again in the three volumes, uh, which is that it's not a disproportionality, although that can exist and cause crisis. Uh, it's not simply that capital needs an outside an, ex, an external world in order to dump. Uh, it's it's a fundamentally uh, crisis of overaccumulation of capital. Capital, in fact, becoming a barrier to itself. So in a sense, he saves, I think, uh, what is what is fundamental in Marx's work, which is, again, that this concept of capital becoming a barrier to itself systemically and logically. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, um, that's that's what Marx says about and and he's and the, the important thing about Marx, uh, about Grossman in, in his reinforcement and clarification of Marx's work is that he is saying that this barrier or feta of surplus capital um, can be um, can be reconverted into productive capital again, but it will resurface on a more on a greater or more powerful basis with the next cycle, or t it will tend to do that um, with each cycle. So that's where we get into how he gets towards not just an explanation of theory but a final crisis where he's saying the the um the greater or the larger capitalism becomes as a system the more difficult it is to valorize um, the existing capital which is increasingly large because the overaccumulation of capital is also an underproduction of surplus value so the amount of uh, the mass of surplus value that is being appropriated from the working class becomes um, becomes uh, there's not enough of it to valorize the amount of capital value that already exists in so const by constant capital we mean the value of the means of of production. And he's doing. He's trying to analyze it on a total basis of the the system as a whole. So there's not enough surplus value to reproduce the value of constant capital, and that produces a crisis whereby. Um, and he explains it in terms of you know, you get the recession, you get panic selling, that cheapens um, commodities, which are also means of production. That enables what what couldn't be invested before can now be invested because um, commodities and means of production have been cheapened, and therefore the system can therefore start to accumulation can therefore be restored on a higher level. So he's explaining that the crisis isn't just inevitable and necessary, but that it actually solves itself as well. It's like a it's a healing process for the system that, that the system requires but then as the system gets yeah yeah so but then the argument is so is he just explaining crisis theory or is he just ex like individual crises or does he also explain um the necessity of a final crisis now if capitalism's to end it has to have a final crisis by definition um so the question becomes can can capitalism end or can it go on forever and apart from rosa luxemburg who had a breakdown theory but the wrong kind um the 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 likes of otto bauer had a harmonist theory or harmonistic theory that capital can accumulate harmoniously and indefinitely so long as it is allowed to adjust to population size or it's more properly reg regulated by the state and, and that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, harmonism, 
which uh, Grossman critiques uh, Otto Bauer and Bernstein and others, um, is very popular today. In fact, you know, you'll get a lot of people who claim that Marx's crisis theory is merely um, a, a theory of the business cycle, which is a theory that uh, in the early 20th century, Keynesians and others picked up, you know, maybe by osmosis, maybe by encountering Marx's ideas. And we all know empirically, we've seen this through history, and we've seen this in our lives, that there is up and down, ups and downs of the business cycle, that capitalism periodically goes into crisis. You have, as you said, a decline of, uh, of prices. You have a liquidation or destruction of capital, and then you have a return to growth. Um, that's all taken for, for granted, I think, by everybody, including vulgar bourgeois economists. If, as you point out, capitalism is a historically determinant um, mode of production that has an end, it does, it does necessarily mean that there's a final crisis. What, um, I guess what, what Grossman, I guess what critique people have again is going back to, um, agency, right. And subjectivity of the working class and Mm. the, the radicalism of, of the breakdown theory can also be seen as like a quietism, right. It could also be seen as we simply wait we sit on our hands and we wait for the final crisis to come and then falling from mm. the earth. And that's not Grossman's view, but that's the way that Grossman has been viewed by others. Yeah, so he's saying that the um, capitalist system force the, the problems with the capitalist system that arise inevitably or necessarily compel the, the ruling class or the capitalist class to attack the living standards and the wages and so on of, of, of the working class and he makes the assumption uh, <laughs> that that forces that compels the working class to fight back because why wouldn't they like you need to um defend your living standards f- simply to survive um but he says the more this in this um relation intensifies the more the working class is forced to fight back harder and in larger numbers that's i think that's that's my reading of it anyway um obviously we need to put this in the context of well the 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 working class hasn't overthrown capitalism yet obviously there are a few isolated examples uh where there have been socialist revolutions uh most of them have ended up being being too isolated um to progress or to survive um so we have to sort of think in that context and you know a lot of people will will say well the working class hasn't fought back it hasn't taken enough of an interest in 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 marx um and that's where i kind of start to think well maybe it's going to take a final crisis where the the actual dynamics at play between um, between the amount of surplus value that the system can produce at a certain point just become too it just becomes too low and you get you end up with a crisis that becomes insurmountable now we can get into the empirical evidence that i've um that I've been citing that suggests to me that that might be coming up sooner than you might think and i'm not the only one saying it by the way um but there are definitely things that they could do that can be done to to count to to counter this sort of or postpone this crisis i'm not saying that that there isn't there are counter tendencies of course just like the 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 secular tendency of uh, the rate of profit to decline you write in your book about grossman himself coming up with various counter tendencies in order to forestall um uh, not overcome of course but forestall a final crisis yeah so one of the the main one is devaluation you devalue the price of labor it's cheaper so your outlay on wages is at least relatively smaller um you can cheapen commodities which which includes the means of production so that relates and you can devalue the means of production that already existed um through moral depreciation that sort of thing 
and that allows the the sort of imbalance between surplus value and capital value to be realigned to to sort of restore the equilibrium between the two there's others like very important ones just expanding the amount of labor employed so um whether that's bringing women women into uh, productive labor or exporting capital overseas to um, employ labor that wasn't previously employed by productive capital the, the mass proletarianization we've seen in china over the last uh, 20 years or so yeah exactly so there's all sorts of ways of doing it you might proletarianize parts of the middle class or the petty bourgeois um so that's that's an important one so what ends up happening is you get this relationship whereby they restore um the they restore accumulation by increasing the amount of labor and labor time that is being exploited and appropriated and that restores the balance but then through that expansion of production and innovation the contradiction just um recurs on a on a greater basis whereby because you're employing more means of production relative to the amount of labor that's being employed um the the same problem arises where you get this underproduction of surplus value and the over accumulation of capital on a greater basis than before so grossman um basically says this can't go on forever because the and Marx talks about, you know, how the the working class can only be exploited for 24 hours in a day, right? And even that isn't really possible because we can't work around the clock. Not not You can't get every individual labourer to work around the clock. Obviously, now with data, they are finding ways of exploiting data sort of around the clock, but that's not quite the same thing. But it is you know it's sort of indirectly increasing um the rate of exploitation um so we seem to be heading towards um like maximum exploitation if you like and unless they can you know ex- find new ways of expanding the labor force and expanding labor time then they're going to come up against absolute limits um so, for example, they're going to want to ter- they're going to make Cuba into a capitalist country again. Um, we can argue about how socialist Cuba is, but mo- mostly it's a, it's a socialized economy. Obviously, it has private it has begun to privatize some of some of it in the last decade or so because, or more than it did before, because of its isolation and its need to trade. But that will never be enough. Like the the US is is running out of outlets to expand productive um capital into so it will try and destroy any sort of form of um you know publicly owned production or even pu- just public services in general because that's how it's going to restore accumulation and overcome the crisis um, we can't we can't obviously allow that to happen. I mean, if we look, um, maybe it will, but it's going to be horrific for uh, for every working class person in the world. If we if we take this from the realm of theory into the realm of history, we know what the what solved the Great Depression uh, of the 19 uh, from 1929 till I don't know, 1939, 1941, however you want to call it. And that, of course, was not just the um, the um, depreciation of massive amounts of capital, uh, means of production and commodities, massive unemployment, of course, through the capitalist core, United States and uh, Europe, but also, as we know, uh, this other tendency uh, of capitalism to engender mass organized violence. Um, and that, of course, was World War II. And so it's only, of course, with this massive physical and also economic destruction of capital that you could have uh, the, the glorious years, the golden age of, of capitalism, uh, quote unquote, from the late 1940s into, of course, its own crisis of the 1970s. And so 
since the 70s, again, this is a well-worn argument on this show, uh, since the 70s, which was another crisis, you've had a series of um, different attempts by capital in order to overcome uh, this overaccumulation crisis. We call that neoliberalism. Uh, we call that globalization. We call that a lot of different things. It seems to me, and I'm sure it seems to you and to Andy as well, that we're in another inflection point. We're in another serious uh, breakdown of production that's expressing itself in a, in a different way now. It's expressing itself in, in inflation. Uh, it's, it's expressing itself in something that looks like full employment uh, or at least a, a lack of um, labor out there, uh, employable labor anyways. Um, what, let's, uh, I, what, what would it look like what would a what would a crisis look like today with all the tremendous amounts of fictitious capital flying around? Take us to today. Take us to are we going to be seeing something like the 1930s and 1940s again for capital to get profitable again? What What's your take on this current moment? I mean, I don't think that it can become massively profitable again like it did after World War Two. I don't think that... I don't think I don't think there is any way that it can destroy enough value um, by by doing like a world war or or something along those lines without just like destroying everything. Um, uh, that's that's a big problem for capitalism now. But also, world war World War Two was really the start of what I would call like in earnest of what I would call the the automation revolution or the second industrial revolution. I don't call it the fourth industrial revolution. I call it the second industrial revolution. So any um, world war that attempted, whether consciously or not, to destroy the sort of excess value um, or the excess capital to get things going again, to get a new boom going again, would accelerate the automation revolution, which is what is causing the depth of this crisis um, anyway. So I don't think that that is an option either. Um, that doesn't mean we're not going to get a series of bigger and bigger wars like here, here, there and everywhere. Um, so I, I think like... If we compare 1930 to now, like the biggest one for me is the energy return on investment, which in 19... So if we just take fossil fuel, in 1930, which is the start of the Great Depression, it was 100 to 1. So for every one unit of energy invested, the return was 100. Now it's like in 20... The, the paper I read uh, recently from from 2019 said that it was now between three and six to one. So that's a secular trend. So we're not going back to 1930. We're going into something worse than 1930. That's, that's how I would read it. Um, you know, Grossman talks about like an absolute overaccumulation of capital. And in some senses that every crisis is an absolute overaccumulation of capital because the capital that becomes overaccumulated is absolute on its own terms, but relative to the system as a whole, it's it's relative and it can be be overcome because it's not absolute on a system wide basis. But I would say we're approaching a crisis where maybe maybe it is becoming an absolute overaccumulation of capital, where the the working class is not producing anywhere near enough surplus value to reproduce the system as a whole, let alone expand it. And, you know, the, the solution, there's two solutions that they're re, that the capitalists are really accelerating now, which is to employ more automation, which allows them to, um, you know, massively cut down on wages. So if you look at the difference something like 3D printing makes to the outlay on production, um, I have problems with his book, um, Aaron Bastani's book, Fully Automated Production, but he does a good job of showing how 
prices of how rapidly prices are falling because of things like the employment of 3d printing it's i think he gives an example of like a uh, of like a aerodynamics company and they're building an engine in two years that cost twenty four thousand uh dollars can now be built for two thousand in in two months or something like that because you're reducing the outlay on on wages but you're also able to produce it a lot quicker which saves money for the capitalists as well all right so if i'm an outside observer and i haven't read any capital i haven't read any ted reese i haven't read any grossman right i look at the economy over the last let's say 13 14 years and i say there was a a, a serious recession a great recession if you will uh but after that point profitability went up there was all sorts of money flying around. The stock market went great. My pension, you know, shot through the roof. Why Why in the world are we focused so much on manufacturing and the production of real goods when there's so many service jobs out there for everybody? In fact, there's like, there's so many service jobs out there that restaurants and retail places can't even fill them up. How would you respond to that? Well, it goes back to the labor theory of value, you know, and... Obviously, it's very difficult to prove that, but um, there are there are ways of of um, proving it. There are certain papers that look at a sort of a temporal theory of value, which back yeah, which backs it up. Kleinman's one of the uh, the Marxists that have done that. I think that's very useful. Um, Paul Cockshot has done a paper that shows how statistical mechanics back it up where he shows that the late the more labor intensive a form of production the more profitable it is in, in relative terms um and then there's there's papers that show like how the falling rate of profit has tended to fall towards zero um historically and secularly so there's one but yeah and uh, yeah there's so, so on the profit rate thing uh aspect there's there's a good one by Astaban Maeto there's other stuff by Michael Roberts showing you know probably not quite as comprehensive but showing the same trend over the decades and this interest rate one that I cite from the Bank of England uh, it's the most comprehensive one done on interest rates that show that it's the baseline interest rates and long-term interest rates have been falling towards zero over the last seven centuries, regardless of regardless of the political situation. Regardless of uh, there even being a Federal Reserve, regardless of fiat yeah. currency, regardless of uh, a universal commodity in gold. I had a look at that after you mentioned it uh, in your book, and it's astounding to imagine a seven-century secular trend towards the rate of return on money you know going to zero exactly how can you possibly think it's possible to reverse that in the long term like it's obviously not this is and something i've been um i mean i just want to mention services like service services jobs will produce surplus value if services workers are handling commodities but they tend to handle near finished or finished commodities because the automated production has done most of the work. So the amount of surplus value they're producing relative to the commodity as a whole is quite low uh, um, compared to when the working class was a manufacturing force. So we've seen deindustrialization throughout the world now, not just in West in the West. So that's that's the thing. So any any sort of um, wealth that's being produced um, through tax havens or pension funds or anything like that, it's just wealth that's being redistributed upwards. It's not creating any new wealth. So I wanted to mention how Marx isn't or and Grossman are not just economic determinists. They're also kind of like technical determinists. So. And I think deterministic determinism is quite a loaded term, which implies something that it's it's not necessarily implying. 
But what I'm trying to get at is that because a lot of Marxists always say, oh, you're an economic determinist. The the economic base influences the, you know, the political legal superstructure and the, the, the developments on the political superstructure react back on the economic base and affect and influence what happens in the economic base. I agree with that, but a lot of the time we forget to actually talk about how the economic base is an economic technical base and how the economic side interacts with the technical side. So Marx, for example, says in Volume 1, the development of manufacture necessitates capitalism. He says it can't be any other form or mode of production. And again, in the in the Grandrissa, he's getting at um, he says that capitalism works towards its own dissolution as it automates production. And what he's getting at is that the... So when you get a crisis, you've got this problem on the value side. There's not enough value being generated to reproduce the system and expand it. So you innovate. So So essentially the technical side comes to... sorts out the value side. You, we innovate and we find new ways to increase the massive value and profit that's being produced through this technical labor process and and technological evolution that gets the system going again but the more productive the technical side is getting the more the value side is kind of like withering away because as i say you get this underproduction of surplus value that becomes more and more severe as time goes on and you know this is why a fully automated system can't be capitalist it has to be socialist it has to uh, be socialist or communist or whatever you want to call it um it has to be the, the it necessitates the socialization or the, or the social ownership of of production because there's no longer the, uh it's no longer possible to invest anywhere near enough capital for production to keep going but at the same time, Grossman is saying the system will break down before we get to that point. Um, I mean, Grossman doesn't really talk about automation per se, but it's the same thing. He's talking about, you know, the larger the means of production get relative to the amount of labour being employed, the more likely we are to have an absolute breakdown. Um, so, yeah, I think where I've tried to update Grossman's work a bit is by talking about automation and the fact that you know it's it's not just a um it's not just something produced by capitalism but it's also something produced by history because history is a technologically evolutionary thing yeah the um i think that right now it's it's very clear that the the contradiction between what uh, could be produced, uh, the amount of uh, means of production that exists, the material substratum, you could call it, of, of value production is not only great, um, but also is, is on its way to being able to produce enough for essentially everybody on humanity, uh, everybody in humanity. And yet you have vast swaths of the world, which are uh, a combination of underdeveloped and uh, overexploited at the same time. And so this this concrete and abstract, the, the possibilities of um, the actual means of production uh, and our incredible abilities uh, to, to, to create more and more and more goods uh, with less and less and less labor um, is in stark contradiction to capital's necessity to, to profit. Capital, of course, doesn't produce for commodities, doesn't produce for use values, it only produces for profits. And so all of the fallow machinery that you see now, um, and I think if we are at the cusp of a new crisis, which I think we would all on here argue, even bourgeois economists would argue that the great mismatch between what it is capable for humanity to produce and reproduce itself versus the stymieing of that actual production by the profit system itself, it only becomes more clear, I think. Yeah, I mean, after the Soviet Union collapsed or was defeated um we had this whole end of history thing whereby the you know liberal democracy and capitalism as a mode of production were hailed as the f the final mode of production and thus the end of history and um 
you know, they didn't expect this to happen again. They didn't think prop capitalism was ever going to run as a mode of production per se was ever going to run into this sort of economic crisis. They thought it was going to solve the production crisis in terms of being able to not only feed everyone but but provide everyone with a, a high standard of living. But yeah, and at times it you know Marx does doesn't disagree with the notion that capitalism can um lift living standards for all for a period he just doesn't think it's sustainable because obviously it cheapens because this is the irony right and it's dialectics um you know as as the rate of exploitation deepens the commodities we buy cheapen so in some ways living standards do rise because we can all afford to buy laptops and smartphones and uh, microphones and you know whatever whatever else it is we can all afford you know, to start no, podcasts exactly and so there are there are there is this kind of semi-progressive side to capitalism where you do have the right the rising number of uh use values that it can produce um but it does it in a reactionary way by you know whenever a crisis hits it it, it attacks wages in the working class and what I would say to your point is just again that the capacity to produce use values now demands a system that produces use values and not commodities because the value side is withering away. 100%. I think that's a, a good place to kind of wind down the main episode. Folks, if you enjoyed this conversation, there will be more of it uh, behind the Antifada paywall. We're going to have. Great more talks with Ted Reese uh, about this, about debt, I think we didn't get into yet, um, the kind of uh, epiphenomenon of this particular crisis that we're in. So become a patron at uh, www.patreon.com slash the Antifada. Check out this bonus content and a whole lot more. Thanks for listening, folks.